we're joined here today by David Braun. Uh, David, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and then maybe talk a bit about the summary of the presentation you recently gave about IKS and around the immunity of renal cancer? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both for having me. This is a a a big fan of the podcast. I'm really excited to join you both. Um, So I'm David Braun. I'm a medical oncologist, uh, and I just moved to to the Yale Cancer Center. And so I spend about 80% of my time running a a new new laboratory really focused on kidney cancer and understanding the biology of it, the immunology of it, and thinking about how we can use that try to design new drugs. Um, And then 20% of my time is spent uh, in the clinic treating patients with uh, typically advanced uh, renal cell carcinoma. And so I just moved to Yale. It's uh, been a wonderful environment here and was really really, uh, pleased to be able to give this this talk in Europe, uh, talking about the immunology of kidney cancer and how we can use new technologies, things like single cell sequencing and other types of technologies to really try to uncover it. So, David, talk about kidney cancer in the context of other immune responsive diseases. How do we, how do we think about it? What's the platform that that you approach it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's helpful to sort of think about that conceptually because, you know, I, I think kidney cancer sometimes gets lumped in with other cancer types, and it's really important to know exactly different, and it's different in a lot of ways. One is when we think of what makes an immunotherapy responsive tumor, we don't know for sure for, for tumors like melanoma, but we know that melanoma has a ton of mutations, really high neoantigen burden. We know that's true for you know, many patients with non-small cell lung cancer, urothelial carcinoma. Those are all on the sort of one end of the spectrum of, of having high mutations, lots of targets for the immune system. Kidney cancer is not like that. Kidney cancer is really in the middle. It looks mutationally more similar to something like glioblastoma or pancreatic cancer, triple negative breast cancer. And so the very fact that some patients are immunotherapy responsive at all is really not well understood. But I think the, to me, at least, it, it really highlights that we, we really have to think about kidney cancer specifically, and we can't just lump it together with the other cancer types, learn lessons from melanoma, and, and just assume that's always going to apply to kidney cancer as well. David, there's something unusual about the immune infiltrating kidney cancer, and there's been quite a lot of work, and indeed some of your work, trying to correlate CD8 and T effector signatures um, with response. And when one looks at the data, you can see that kidney cancer, unlike some other cancers, has a much higher immune infiltrate. Could you talk a bit about that immune infiltrate and the work you've done exploring that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big picture that I'd sort of I'd sort of get from you know, some of the work we've done and some of the beautiful work that's been done by by other groups as well is that it's complicated and that we still have a lot to figure out. The, the bottom line, one of the reasons kidney cancer has been always such a puzzle is if you look at something, a really basic thing, like the number of CD8 T cells in a tumor, and you think, you know, CD8 T cells, they're the thing that kill cancer. Having a lot of them in a tumor is a good thing, even prognostically. And almost for almost every other solid tumor, that's true having a lot of CD8 T cells associated with a good prognosis. Historically for kidney cancer, the opposite has been true, where actually having a lot of CD8 T cells has been associated with a worse prognosis. And so to me, that's the hint, not that CD8 T cells are bad in kidney cancer, but that the picture is a lot more complicated and we need better tools to be able to dissect this. And that's where uh, our group has sort of uh, helped to step in and many other groups, Ellie Van Allen, Aria Kimi, Tim Chan, Chuck Drake's group, Sam, Sam many other really phenomenal groups have sort of stepped in to begin to fill in some of the gaps uh, using technologies like single cell RNA sequencing that give us a much deeper view 
of uh, what are the T cells that are there, but also I think a really important piece that's emerging, what are the other immune cells that are there that might sort of influence or guide them? So, so David, tell us about those other immune subsets, because I think on the surface, we just think of, of T cells, right? T-cell, like you say, T cells are good. T cells attack cancer. If yep. they're there, they should be doing, you know, they, they should be a good thing, but they're not always. And clearly there's, there's other context here. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, the first thing I'll say about T cells themselves is I, I sort of break it down to a really sort of simple sort of three parts to it. Are there enough there? If they're not infiltrating the tumor, they're not going to be able to kill. Are they the right specificity? Meaning you could have T cells there, but if they don't recognize the tumor, if they're just bystanders, they you know recognize a, some sort of virus, it's not going to actually help you kill kidney cancer. And then the, the last part is, are they the right phenotype? Meaning, are they in a state where even if they have the right target, they're able to, in theory, to recognize kidney cancer and there's enough of them there, they're actually able to carry out their job of cytotoxicity, of actually killing kidney tumors. And that last part is really influenced by the environment around it, the, the microenvironment of soma, and that's largely the other immune cells that are there, particularly the myeloid component. And that's where, you know, uh, we had a lot of independent efforts, but I think there was a really a convergence in all of these independent efforts that that myeloid component, this uh, particularly tumor-associated macrophage population, really seems to be a bad actor in kidney cancer in a way that I think brings up at least the concept that these are something that might be worth uh, thinking about how to deal with therapeutically. David, M1 and M2, does it really exist? Um or is it more of a spectrum of, of macrophages? And why would macrophages be inhibitory? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And so I, I think, you know, um, there's always the, the sort of idea, uh, all models are wrong, some are useful, right? So most of our classifications, they're not perfect, they're, but they're sometimes useful. And so thinking in terms of M1 or a pro-inflammatory macrophage, and that, you know, we think of as having a good effect in attacking tumor, and M2, which is classically anti-inflammatory and might be immunosuppressive or help tumor growth. It's sometimes a nice frame how to think about things, but rarely do things fall into neat buckets. I think that's a universal lesson I'm learning. It's not just true of macrophages, true of many things within the, the tumor itself, but I think it certainly applies to macrophages, where if we think of those as maybe ends of a spectrum, things really exist along a continuum that don't fit really neatly into an M1 or M2 bucket. Um, and sometimes things have features of, of both. Uh, and it really does exist, as you were saying, along this along the spectrum. And David, so David yeah. related related question. I mean, what's the what are the right macrophage markers? I mean, are there are there twenty seven types? Are there five? We, you just said there's not two. I mean, how close are we to really understanding this compartment, so to speak? Yeah, I think the I think we're getting closer, but I think the way we have to think about it might actually be slightly different. And I, I agree. I you know my natural inclination is to break it down into it is this or that. You know, is it do we need two categories or five categories or 10 categories? If we sort of have a different concept of how to think about it and say it's okay for things to exist along us, that's not going to neatly fall into one or two buckets, and that it is really a, a continuum. It's you know, it's it's sometimes hard, it makes classification harder and these sorts of things. You think about actually how to rationally target these things. I, I think that sort of framework is is actually helpful because we could say we don't have to say you know it is perfectly an M1 or M2, but if it veers towards more an M2 like phenotype, something that we think is inhibiting T cells, then one type of therapy might be appropriate. If it 
veers towards an M1-like phenotype uh, or one that's pro-inflammatory, we might think of different approaches. And so, I, you know, I don't think we necessarily have to break it down into to 40 buckets, but allowing things to exist uh, a little bit on a spectrum is okay. David, CXCL9 is a marker of, of macrophages and it's come up in your work and many other models as from a gene expression perspective associated with response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Explain why that might be the case. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think the the uh, sort of issue that we sometimes see is it's a marker of immune cell infiltration. It, it can be a, a, a sort of chemokine that sort of leads to uh, attracting of the right populations. But I think it, it falls potentially, you know, uh, I'll say this sort of cautiously, I, I'd be weary of an individual marker having a tremendous value. And I, I say that in a way that I hope I'm wrong. I mean, you know, I, I, I wish that sometime we have a marker like EGFR and lung cancer where it's it's essentially binary. It's there or it's not. And we, we have a pretty good sense of that if it's going to work. Or we have something like a CXCL line expressing tumor-associated macrophage. We have it versus not. We know there's going to be a good response versus not. Um, my sense is that, uh, again, and uh, I hate to keep on co- going back to immunology. is complicated. I think it's why so many people kind of you know, don't always love the field of immunology because it's the answer is always it's complicated, but it but it's true. It's probably not going to be one thing. Um, it's not going to be CXC online, you know, producing macrophages by themselves. It really is going to be a network approach. It's saying, okay, how do we integrate all of these factors together? The T cell compartment, the uh, macrophage compartment, probably the stromal compartment, things like. Uh, Look, and the filial cells that are there, and of course the tumor cells themselves, and how do we look at all of those different axes and say, based on all of these, what is the right approach to therapy? I think you know a lot of the initial studies, including the studies we did, we had a Nature Medicine paper a couple of years ago where we looked kind of gene by gene and said mutation by mutation is something going to be associated with response, and there might be small effect sizes there, but nothing that uh, I'm going to in the clinic say you should or should not get. Uh, immunotherapy. Now, uh, look, look, David, you're doing quite well and everything, but you haven't measured T cell cl- um, receptor diversity or clonality yet. And to get full marks, you need to cover that space too. Do you, <laughs> Absolutely. Do, do, you, uh, do you want to kick off a little bit about that? And maybe you could lead into some of the progressive immune dysfunction work you did associated with that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the, the key aspect of the T cells is not only that they're there, right? That, that if they're absent from the tumor, that's no good. Um, they have to be the right phenotype. If they're totally exhausted and dysfunctional, that's, that's not a good thing. But the last aspect I mentioned is they have to actually be specific for the tumor. And that sounds, that sounds maybe like a, a trivial thing. Like they're in the tumor. Of course, they're going to be specific and capable of recognizing the tumor. But we actually know, and I, I'm going to do what I just cautioned against, which is compared to other cancer types. But we know from other cancer types where excellent groups, Evan Newell's group and others have looked at this and shown that lung cancer and other tumor types a lot of the T cells that are in just aren't capable of recognizing the tumor itself. And so that's one of the key aspects is, are the T cells actually there capable of measuring, uh, of, of reacting to and, and uh, recognizing the tumor? Now, that's really actually hard to measure. Um, when we think about, you know, in an ideal world, how would we measure that? Well, we take out the patient's tumor cells, we take out those T cells, we and see if it works. That's obviously not practical. And so what is one way we can maybe begin to get at that, to hint at that? And that's this idea of T-cell clonality, T-cell diversity, meaning 
you know, when we think about what a T cell does, when a functional T cell recognizes a tar- its target, it starts to expand. It starts to proliferate. One becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, and so on. And so if we see an individual T cell receptor that's really expanded, meaning there's lower diversity within the tumor, that might be a hint to us that there are actually T cell populations that are there that really are tumor reactive. It's not perfect, obviously. It, it's not guaranteed, but I think it's a pretty pretty useful surrogate. Um, and I think there's actually some clinical value in that. And if we look at, at, at Sam's recent work in cancer cell, uh, part of the adapter trial where she looked at responders and non-responders, there was a clear difference where those that had uh, more clonality, less diversity, really, really were associated with better responses. Again, hinting that perhaps having that tumor-specific population uh, of T cells there is really helpful. David, can we jump jump back to the myeloid compartment for a second? I want to talk about therapeutics. You know, there are some some anti-myeloid drugs uh, that are sort of in early development. There's a TREM2 antibody. There's others that we've been interested in. Do you have have an opinion about, I don't know, might even say the best drug, but the best way to target the myeloid compartment? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And so I say the first thing is it's always when you have multiple groups working on something independently and they all kind of converge on the same answer. And so, you know, in our work, we found this what we called an M2-like population, but when we looked at some of the markers, it was positive for TREM2. When Chuck Drake's group looked at you know macrophages that were associated with uh, with recurrence after nephrectomy. And again, it was a TREM2 positive macrophage population. Our Akimia Tim Chan's group looked at a patient who was resistant to immunotherapy and what were the macrophage population they were enriching? A TREM2 positive population. So when I, I think there's a convergence of multiple groups all kind of arriving at a similar answer, it probably means the biology there is, is, is real. And so what is the best approach? Well, I, I think, you know, one option is sort of trying to deplete those macrophages. And if we think that it's TREM2 is a marker for them, and, and I think our group has certainly sort of found that and, and others as well, I think that is actually a pretty appealing approach. The other thing, again, is uh, they're, they're not existing in isolation. They're actively talking to the T cells. And I think that's one of the things we found in our own work is that as the disease moved from an early stage to locally advanced to metastatic, there were changes in T cell populations and macrophage populations, but they were actually talking to one another. So these uh, TREM2, these M2-like macrophages, were producing a lot of the ligands that inhibit T cells. So things for the PD-1 receptor, which we know target, but also other things for TIGID and other receptors as well. And so perhaps blocking that communication is going to be really important. But I think it's also bidirectional. I think those T cells can, in a way, support this 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 you know this bad acting myeloid population. And so. You know, I, I think when there's a circuit like this, the key is break the circuit. And the, the answer is probably going to be to target both. It's not going to be to target one thing or the other, but to really shut it down by targeting both the myeloid population and the dyslexia population. David, your progression immune dysfunction work showed deset, decreased T-cell repertoire, repertoire diversity uh, with therapy. It showed increased terminally exhausted T cells. Um, it showed decreased clonality. And that was associated with more advanced disease. Um, what happens when you give immune checkpoint inhibitors to these, uh, these parameters? What happens to T cell diversity and the effect on other compartments in the tumor microenvironment by the addition of nivolumab or pembrolizumab, irrespective of response or resistance? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the short answer is, I don't think we know for sure. I think there's evidence that 
it definitely gets remodeled. And so we know that certain checkpoint molecules go up, that things like PD-1 and TIM-3, things that we typically think is not, not being so positive when they're in the tumor, those definitely increase. But we know also some markers that indicate those be more capable of killing, things like expression of granzymes, those also go up with, with immunotherapy. And so I think what we really need is, you know, there have been the, all of these sort of hints of it. So Ellie Van Allen's work, which is, which is beautiful, I was grateful to be a part of, really showed a difference between tumors that were exposed to checkpoint blockade versus not. In Arya Kimi's work, they looked at a single patient who was responsive and a single patient really resistant. And I think there's a lot to learn from those sort of end of one situations. But I think moving forward, now that we have all of this, these sort of threads, I think what we need is a really definitive study where we actually take a lot of patients who are getting immunotherapy and we, we do the effort to get treatments, uh, biopsies beforehand on treatment if possible at progression and really look at these questions. Well, how is the immune infiltration changing? How is the T cell diversity and which specific clonotypes are changing? I think that is really going to be the next key. Dave, is there any data on mechanisms of response and resistance acquired to response and resistance with, with immune checkpoint inhibitors, or is it, are we just too early to look at that yet? So I, I think there's definitely data, but it's hard. There's not a lot of consistency is the short answer. It, you know, when we look at individual threads, for instance, you know, we have found, so Ellie Van Allen's group had initially identified PBRM1 loss of function mutations as being associated with response to single agent checkpoint blockade, PD-1 blockade after anti-angiogenics. And we found the same thing in independent cohorts, but that hasn't universally been true, that people have looked in first-line settings or combination settings, and that hasn't always, hasn't always found that. And so I think that's a really good example of it being complicated and context really mattering. Endogenous that retroviruses are another actually good example where there's multiple groups have found these really interesting associations between expression of these these uh, remnant viruses that live in our genome. They get re-expressed in kidney cancer, and the multiple groups have found that those actually might be associated with immune checkpoint response. Groups have found the opposite. And again, I don't think it's that one's right and one's wrong. I think that these things are complicated. It's going to be context dependent, and we still have a lot to learn. So, David, given given mm -hmm. that. Are we at all close to finding a biomarker for response or resistance? I mean, given the complexities, what, what you just described, I think very, let's call it inconsistent findings across markers so far, the different compartments. I mean, is that is that a realistic goal? And then how close are we? I, I think it is. And I, I think it's a... I mentioned this idea of really kind of rigorously studying, you know, going deep in a, a group of patients where we're able to really do things like single cell RNA-seq and, and you know, high dimensional analysis on patients receiving immunotherapy. And I think that the benefits of that are multiple. One is, you know, one could certainly envision biomarkers coming out of that. And I think realistically, again, I, I hope that it's we could just measure a single gene mutated or not, and that'll guide us. The reality is I think it's going to be more complicated. I think it's if it's going to be a biomarker, it's probably going to be a composite biomarker that looks at a lot of domains, looks at the tumor axis, at the T-cell axis, the myeloid axis, and sort of based on all of these factors, integrates it in some way to come up with a, you know, uh, uh, is this going to be therapy A or therapy likely to work for a patient? I don't think it's a pipe dream, but I think it's probably still a little ways away. I mean, David, one one final question for me, Tom, is, and Tom debated Bill Kalin on this, which was really Very hilarious. You should go back and listen to that. <laughs> you know, you know is it, look for the specific biomarkers and give this patient drug A and that patient drug B, or 
you know, a more empiric approach, as you alluded to a bit and saying, well, we need to target T cells, we need to target the myeloid, we need to target maybe another immune component. And let's just empirically target each of those components that might be more or less useful in an individual patient. And presuming it's tolerable, we'll just give, you know, multi-drug therapy to all patients. Well, where do you land on that? I'm going to be incredibly diplomatic and say both. But actually, I think there's a real reason. For this. I think there's a real reason for this. Um, one is just trying empiric combinations of things actually is, is a good strategy. And there's a, I remember when I was at Farber, there was a really striking uh, figure from Steve Salad, who had done a lot of the pediatric leukemia trials, where it just showed basically the survival curve for pediatric leukemia over like 20 years. And it was just so, you know, remarkable. It went up tremendously over 20 years. And the slide ends with saying no new drugs during this time, just new combinations. Um, and so it was just all empiricism, all just trying, you know, to optimize which are the things well together, what's the dosing, the timing, the schedule, all of that stuff in pediatric leukemia made an enormous difference. And so the idea of combining things empirically is, you know, I don't think that's a, a wrong answer, but it's also nice if you can do it in a little bit more of a rational way. And, you, you know, in an ideal world, you want to combine things that are synergistic, that are actually helping each other. You want to try to avoid things that are actively going to antagonize each other. And sometimes things are going to be independent. That's where I argument probably falls in is independent is okay that if you're trying to get rid of every last resistant tumor cell that's left in the body having 10 different drugs that all act independently is you know probably going to be more likely to get rid of every last tumor cell that's there so that's okay but rationally trying to have a, a biological understanding so that one you can come up with new drugs to add to the arsenal but two you can try to rationally combine things that are going to be work well together but i also think critically to avoid things that are actively not going to work well together you know you don't want to give something with immune therapy if that second agent is actually going to harm the immune response and so that's where i think having a biological knowledge is really helpful david the last time i was invited to give a face-to-face -face presentation at asco i said mutations to pbl1 PBRM1 were definitely not associated with response to immune therapy. Um, was I right in that? Um, again, I'll give a diplomat again, which is, I think it's context dependent. I think we, we've now seen multiple independent lines of evidence where there's absolutely cases where that's true. So if we look at Checkmate 009, the original, which is what Ellie Van Allen, we look at independent cohorts, it is a really specific context. It's this, these patients who receive angiogenic agents, my guess is the tumors remodeled in some way, and then getting PVRM1 after, uh, getting uh, immune therapy after that, that's really the context that seems to be in multiple studies now uh, so, predicted. But again, so it's- David, I'm, being, it's, I'm a bit, being, being a bit flippant in my answer, because you did write rather a nice paper showing that new patient, mutations to PVRM1 were actually associated with what appears to be a specific type of, or lack of immune infiltration. And indeed, that was associated potentially with resistance. Could you explain why a mutation to PBRM1 might be associated with a dynamic change to the immune repertoire? Yeah, I think it's not necessarily that a mutation causes a lack of immune infiltration, but that, again, it's it's an, as I was sort of saying in the beginning, I think it's complicated and it's an integrative picture. And so this was a paper we published a, a couple of years ago, where when you look at just one factor like genetics, whether it was PBRM1 or others, a little bit of the way there, but not that much. But what, what you have to do is you have to integrate multiple dimensions. So in that case, it wasn't, you know, we didn't go to integrating 50 to, to, okay, what's the immune infiltration look like and what are the genetics of the tumor look like? 
And by immunofiltration, it was just how many CD8 T cells are there. And what we saw was, yeah, PBRM1 was associated with response, but it was also predominantly found as really enriched in these non-infiltrated tumors. And so, yeah, maybe PBRM1 was helping in that context, but you're also kind of starting off at a, at a difficult place. When you're starting off with not a lot of T cells, it's really probably hard to get a great response. And PBRM1 is kind of helping to bring you a little bit of the way there. The contrast to that was actually deletions of 9P21.3. And we know that those 9P deletions, you know, those are bad actors in kidney cancers. Those are associated with metastases, those are associated with aggressive behavior, and those were really enriched in infiltrated tumors. And so, again, it's not necessarily that T cell infiltration is bad. I don't think that at all. But if you also have these sort of bad acting uh, uh, genetic alterations, then it's going to drag down any positive effect you might get from from having more CD8s. And so, again, I think it's an argument that, you know, looking at just one thing at a time, even two things at a time is probably not going to be sufficient. We have to think about tumor genetics. We have to think about the T cells. We have to think about the myeloid cells and really integrate those things together. David, very last, very last question for me real quick. You, You alluded to VEGF exposure, perhaps modulating the immune microenvironment. How much do you believe for our IOTKI combos that there's really immunomodulatory effects of the VEGF agents, or is it just an A plus B combination? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know for sure is the short answer. I would hope that, you know, there is a positive effect. We know that, you know, immune cells do express the VEGFR2 receptor and might be some immunomodulation. There's certainly some preclinical effect. I would say, you know, my... My suspicion is that uh, is that at least a huge part of it is capturing independent populations. That yeah. there's a population that's responsive to immunotherapy. There's a population that's responsive yeah. to anti-angiogenics. They're not totally overlapping, so they're casting a wider net. I my guess is that's a a substantial part of it. Got it. David, I think this is super cool. Two questions for me. Number one, what do you think of tertiary lymphoid structures uh, in kidney cancer? And then number two. What do you think of these are well, these RNA signatures, Brian's RNA signature, um, with other colleagues, which was developed um, looking at the seven subcategories with angiogenic, proliferative, and immunogenic subgroups? Yeah. So first, with the, the TLSs, the tertiary lymphoid structures. Um, honestly, I I didn't think they were going to be as big a thing in kidney cancer. When, when we looked at some of the the samples, they just didn't seem as abundant as it was in other tumor uh, tumor types. But I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I think just overlooked it. I think those, they, they're not, you know, they're not as common in kidney cancer, perhaps, as other solid tumors, but I think they're there. And I think they're almost certainly playing a role. And the biology would just, I think this is a kind of a new field. There's a beautiful immunity paper pretty recently. And, you know, there's some association with, with clinical response, but just the fact that they're actually present when you do a more detailed analysis, this high dimensional analysis of spatial transcriptomics approach in that case, I think that really opens up a new field of how are those TLSs going to uh, influence T-cell behavior and anti-tumor killing. The last is sort of Brian's work, which is the, the molecular classification of kidney cancer based on bulk RNA-C. And I think that's a re- I think it was a really, really nice study. It's not often that you get great quality RNA-seq on not so agreed, many Not often, not often. I would agree. Not that. often. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It was, you know, it was a really, I think it was a really unique opportunity that uh, really smart people uh, absolutely were able to extract information out of. I think, you know, there's a couple things to to sort of 
One is at least some hope that you might be able for certain therapies to use a molecular classification to actually help you guide. Is this someone who's less or more likely to be responsive to certain types of drugs? I think the next step is obviously we have to validate that. We have to see is this true beyond a Tezobev? Is this broadly uh, applicable sort of classification that might might be helpful for choosing IOIO versus IOVEGF? I think that's something that we, you know it opens up the question that we need to test. And the second thing is, you know, some of those clusters have really been you know, well-defined. You know, we know there's an angiogenesis kind of group of kidney cancer. We know there's a kind of an immune infiltrated group. I think some of those other clusters opens up a lot of areas that's really interesting. Are the stromal component, the complement and fatty acid oxidation, and the small nuclear RNA, are, are all of those subgroups, how often do we see them in in other populations and other uh, cohorts of kidney cancer patients? And then what is the biology? Can we can we learn from that to actually improve things? So I think uh, that is, it was a really a study that is uh, sort of sets a whole new field to to explore. And so I I, I really enjoyed reading it and certainly thought a lot about it. I wish you'd give a shout out to Maruk and Sanj, who did a lot of that work yeah, too. Sure. Uh, terrific um, from the Genentech group. Um, Brian, do you want to talk anything about that signature and what you're trying to do with it now? Um, yeah, real briefly, I mean, as, as some know, we're trying to do a prospective study where we classify patients based on cluster. And then right now, just give them, a, you know, assign them to uh, Ipinevo or an IOTKI regimen. But we hope that study, which we call OPTIC, is going to be a platform to test new drugs. And David, to your point, to, to test those cluster three and cluster six patients who are probably driven by different biology. And we may or may not have the appropriate drugs yet, but presumably moving forward, we'll get some of those anti-myeloid drugs, you know, and can start at least somewhat personalizing therapy, you know, not so much in a specific biomarker like EGFR you alluded to, but, but at least putting patients into categories where they're, they're enriched for benefit. David, this has been fantastic. It really yep. has uh, amazing, uh, terrific papers, great presentation in Antwerp uh, recently. And, uh, and thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'd love to talk to you again soon. Uh, and uh, congratulations again. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you both. And thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, David. Talk soon. Bye-bye.